Good morning. How y'all doing today? I'm doing good, thanks. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, if you are joining us here for the first time this morning here in our sanctuary, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be continuing the Apostle John's experience in the throne room of God and looking at what might be the first part of a two-part study on what true worship is. If you've been with us for the last few months, you've been with us as we've gone through Revelation, and when we got to chapter four, starting in that chapter, our study shifted to heaven. We've been literally in heaven from chapter four forward, and in, there in chapter four in the beginning, we saw John get caught up there into heaven where he sees this wonderful vision of God on the throne, He sees the 24 elders. He sees the four living creatures. And then in chapter five, him still in the throne room of God, we opened up with Jesus claiming the title deed of earth as our kinsman redeemer, as the one and only one who could possibly fulfill the redemption clause of mankind and all of creation. And so today, we're gonna see what is possibly the largest worship service in history, right? It is huge. The venue of this worship service, heaven itself, and in attendance at this worship service is God, some strange creatures, (laughs) angels, the redeemed, it says. And then later on in the chapter, it says that the number of all of these, the angels and the redeemed and the creatures, is thousands upon thousands of thousands, all singing praise to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now, Worship is very, very important to God, as we're going to see later in this chapter. It's incredibly important to him, and even though what we're looking at this morning has taken place in heaven, you know, worship is uh, something we could do anywhere. We could worship God any place. It doesn't have to only be here Sunday morning. It doesn't have to only be in a church. We could worship God anywhere, any day. Worship isn't something reserved for Sunday alone. We can worship God at home. We can worship God in our car. We can worship God inside. We can worship God outside. Worship is a universal thing, but it will have its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate expression when we get to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, worship there will no longer be a long distance experience. We will be face to face with God Almighty. We will be singing directly into his eyes. We will be smiling at him as we praise. He will be right there with us, and we will be present with the Lamb of God, who will still then bear the marks of our redemption, as we talked about last week, and we will there be praising him forever. So there's a lot of information here at the end of Revelation chapter 5. There's actually three different different songs of worship that we're going to be studying. This week, we're going to look at the first song. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 10 of Revelation 5. And the next time we're together, we'll look at the second two songs in verses 11 through 14. But the big overarching question that these next two studies pose to us is simply this. How important is worship to you? How important is worship to you? As you contemplate that question, one of the natural places your mind might wander to is the next question. Well, how important is worship to God? How important is it to him? Well, biblically, the answer to that question is pretty simple. (laughs) If you're a student of the Bible, you'll see that worship is a top priority to God and possibly the 
top priority. Because when we think of um, what God wants from us, you know, other things might naturally come to mind, especially in line with our specific giftings and callings. We might think, oh, evangelism is the most important thing to God. We might think outreach is the most important thing to God. Some might go, no, discipleship is the most important thing God wants from us in our relationship with him. Others might say, no, it's teaching. It's teaching the word. That's obviously the top priority to God. Now, all of those things for sure are incredibly important, very important, vital to our uh, faith walk as Christians, but they're not on the top of the list of what God wants from his people. There at the top of the list is worship. Because what happens here, here on earth, here from, from me to you, the pulpit to, to, to the body here as we gather together, what happens from each of you to one another as the body ministers to one another, and then what happens from us to the world as we go out to share the gospel of Christ, all of our outreach, all of our activity, all of our outward activity stems from our upreach. It stems from our worship, our worship relationship with our God. Because everything we are, Everything we do is God's children. It's all a direct reflection of our worship of God. Is he our everything? Is he our focus? Is he our priority? Is he our reason for everything? Do we worship truly? What is that even? (laughs) What does that even mean? Well, we're gonna attempt to answer some of these questions this morning in Revelation 5, but first, we are gonna spend some time in worship because God is worthy. He is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of our praise, and as we're gonna see today, we get, as his people, the wonderful opportunity to respond to him for what he has done in saving our souls, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we love you so much. Lord, we uh, quite literally are nothing without you. Lord, without you, we are simply lost people controlled by our sin, standing in the path of your judgment against sin. But Lord, as believers, we've come to a place, God, where we believed in you. We believed in who you are and what you did for us, God. We received that free gift of salvation that you offered to us, Lord, and we were born again. We were redeemed. We were saved. We were set free from the power and control of sin to then for the rest of this life live a life that glorifies you, a life with true meaning and true purpose. Lord, a life of true love that we couldn't possibly do without you. And then on top of that, we have the hope of heaven and an eternity just with you in perfection. God, you are so worthy. And God, we wanna open this morning in worshiping of you, Lord, even in preparation of of looking into your word and learning what true worship is all about. But God, we wanna glorify your name and praise you because God, you are everything. You are our everything, you are our reason for being. And we love you and we thank you. So God, be glorified this morning. Fill us and move through us in your spirit, God, that we would be people who respond to what you have done. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, today we are in Revelation chapter five, looking at verses eight through 10. So I just wanna read the verses for context. It says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. 
Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. So that's the first worship song we're looking at here at the end of Revelation chapter five. And I want us all to notice five things. If you're taking notes and now you're like, I don't need to take notes, they're gonna email them to me, but whatever. If you wanna write this down, okay. Um, There's five things that we're gonna notice in this. One, we're gonna see who's involved in the worship here in heaven. We're gonna see what inspired their worship. We're gonna see their posture in worship. We're gonna see the tools that they employed in their worship. And then lastly, we're gonna look at the nature of the praise that they give in worship. And so the first thing is who's involved here in this worship service? Well, immediately we see that it says there's four living creatures and the 24 elders. Now next week, it adds to this worship service that there are also many angels. And then it says there is thousands plus thousands of thousands in attendance at this worship service. So there's a lot there. Now specifically, we looked at the four living creatures and the 24 elders when we studied chapter four. If you remember, these four living creatures were there in God's throne room. And and it's my understanding and my belief that they're literal creatures. Some people go, no, they're just a metaphorical representation. But I believe they're literal creatures that exist there in heaven. Now, they do have a very strange description as John did his best to describe what he was seeing there. And he says that they're covered in eyes, both front and back, both sides of their wings. They have six wings each. They bore the likeness of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Very strange looking creatures. But the term there that he uses for living creatures is the Greek word zoa. We get our English word zoology. From this word. And if you understand what the word zoology means, it simply means a study of living creatures, actual living creatures. And so this Greek word zoa is a word not used to reference metaphorical things, but actual living creatures. And so, and then as we go through Revelation, we see that these four living creatures say and do things. They're involved in worship. It actually told us that they worship in a never-ending manner in the presence of God. Um, So they're, they're special angelic beings of God's presence hovering around the presence of God at all times. And so they are there for this worship service. Then it says the 24 elders. And if you remember then, those elders are representative of the entire body of Christ, every single Christian. They represent the entire church, the saved, the redeemed that have been caught up before the tribulation there in the throne room of God. Now we get this from the ideas from both the Old Testament and the New Testament because in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tribe of Levi, there were 24 priestly divisions. So 24 divisions of priests from the tribe of Levi and these 24 divisions represented all the people of Israel. And so we see that these 24 elders are representative of all the people of God. But then it's 24 elders, not 24 priests. And in the New Testament, we know that an elder is a church leader. An elder is a representative of the church, and so thus the 24 elders represent the entire body of Christ there in heaven. So what inspired their worship? Well, what does it say there in the very beginning of verse 8? 
when he took the scroll. That's what it tells us. The worship that we're seeing here in Revelation 5 is in response to a completed work of the Lamb. It's in response to a completed work of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God, as we studied in the first part of chapter 5, stepped up, takes the scroll, takes the ownership, the authority to rule. Him taking the scroll was a result of the finished redemption that he did, that the, the redemption price that he paid by shedding his blood, it was a finished work there. And on that cue of him taking the scroll, we read here in Revelation 5 that then a response is given, a response of worship. But one of the things I want to point out here is, is this whole scene shows us something I think is very important, that there's order in the worship service, okay? There's order. It's not a chaotic mess, all right? It's not a chaotic mess with people speaking over each other and hooting and hollering and rowing, rolling down the aisle. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's orderly, all right? Paul the Apostle, in addressing um, how church services, church gatherings are to be conducted, he said this in 1 Corinthians 14.40, but everything is to be done decently and in order. When the church gets together, everything is to be done decently in order, and this includes worship. You see, what we don't see here in heaven is John standing there and just going, I feel like hollering. Blah, 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 and just starts hollering over everybody. And then the four creatures are like, well, I'm an ox, moo. Well, I'm an eagle, caca. And it's just this big mess of worship in heaven. That's not what we see. We don't see it just going off the rails. We see order. In chapter five, it says that the lamb takes a scroll, and then in response to that work, the 24 elders and the four living creatures bow down, and then they say certain things, and they say them together in unity, and they worship God that way. And so the inspiration of their worship here, it teaches us that, that true worship, it, it's a response to God. That's what true worship is. For the redeemed, it should be a natural response to God. For those that have received salvation, that have been forgiven and set free, right? It should be a natural response of ours to worship God. We shouldn't have to force it. We shouldn't have to struggle to worship, right? Um, and I know there's times where we all deal with that, but I think what we're about to get into might tell us why we have those times of struggle with worship. Because worship, it's not an appeal it's not a coercion. It's not a manipulation of God. We don't worship God because we want to, you know, put him in the right mood to get what we want. You know, we've talked about that before as kids. You know, when you want something from mom and dad, that's when you do the foot massages and make breakfast in bed and, and you do all the things, right? And, you know, and the parents are like, oh, thank you so much. And it's always, what do you want, right? Oh, that new video game, can you get it for me, right? There's, there's, it, worship of God isn't that. It's not a show, it's not a performance. Really all that to say that worship is not for us. It's not because of us or about us. True worship never has to be worked up because it's not about a feeling. It's not because of a feeling. We don't only worship when we feel like it. We worship because God is worth it. And so, it's not to say that, that there, there isn't or shouldn't be emotion in worship. I mean, worship can be very emotional. 
It could be a very emotional moment, but, but it's not primarily feeling motivated. Worship isn't about making us feel better. It's not to get us in the mood for Bible study, right? It, it, it's none of those things. Worship should never be based on whether I feel like worshiping or not. That's not true worship. Worship is in response to God for all he has done. It's a response to him. You know, God has worked in your life. God is working in your life. God has been working in your life all week long. He's been faithful all week long. He's been faithful every moment of every day. You are his child. He loves you. Not only did he save you, but he then does more in our lives, right? He is faithful and has been. And so worship is that opportunity where it's like, it's like, it's your turn. It's your turn to now respond to him in gratitude and thanks for what he has done. It's your turn to give him the glory. It's your turn to give him the praise. It's your turn to express to him the, his worth, how amazing he is. And that's what we see here in Revelation 5. It's a demonstration ultimately of love to the one we love because he first loved us. And so we see these 24 elders, representative of the whole church and the four living creatures, and the next time also in attendance are the angels, naturally responding inspired to worship Christ for what he has done. That's the inspiration. That's why we worship. Now, the third thing I want to talk about this morning is what was the posture of their worship? What does it say there in the verses? It tells us that they fell down before the lamb. They fell down before the lamb. They were so awestruck at what he had done. They were so grateful at what God had done in redeeming them and redeeming creation and dealing with the curse. They were so overwhelmed that, that like now the earth can be fully redeemed and bought back and, and, and it's being bought back by God, the lamb, the one who died for everything and paid the price. Oh my gosh, the, the rulership, the dominion, the, the ownership, it's restored, the curse is lifted, corruption is done. Wow. And so it says they fell down. Now, before you think fell down is like a slain in the spirit type of thing, that's not what this is, all right? We don't work ourselves up to where like, God is so great, and we just fall over, right? That, that's not the idea here, okay? That, that term fall down or fell down, it simply means to throw oneself to the ground as a sign of devotion or humility. In ancient times, Doing this was, was one of the greatest demonstrations of respect and veneration in, in ancient times. To, to bow down, to, to do what this word is talking about. The idea is, is getting down on the ground in front of somebody to show devotion to them. And it's an action that you do in humility to say you, you are worth it. You deserve all the praise and the honor. This concept, in fact, is seen all over the Old Testament. You study through the Old Testament, you'll see the word worship many times, and there's a whole bunch of different words for worship, but the word that is used most frequently in the Old Testament for worship, I can't pronounce it, so I'm just gonna tell you what it means, okay? It means, the word means, I think it's like shaha or something like that, but the word means to bow down, literally to bow down, to lie prostrate, like to lie down, face down on the ground, or to pay homage. You guys understand the concept of paying homage, right? 
That's when in ancient times you would go before the king or the ruler or the person who was, who was in that position of authority and power and you would pay homage. You would give to them, whether it was gifts or respect or you know, all that type of thing. The word that's used most in the Old Testament is that word. And so the idea of worship going all the way back is this idea of bowing down or making oneself low before another in humility, in humility. As a matter of fact, Psalm 95.6 says this, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's the idea. I'm paying homage to the king of kings. I'm offering veneration to the one who is worthy. I am lowering myself because he is high above all and deserves to be. You know, Paul even predicts that one day, what does he say? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. That's what's going to come in the future. And so the very act of worship and in, in what I'm defining here is true worship, the very act of it, it's a, it's a complete emptying of self. There is none of you, there is none of me in that moment, that act of worship. When we truly worship, there is none of us in it. There is no preoccupation with self. There is no focus on self. It's a full preoccupation with God, with him and what he has done. It's all about him and him alone. Now, I think this may, might be why um, some people don't involve themselves in worship in the church like they should. Because, now, now I, I, I'm not intending to call anybody out here, Okay. So before you send me a, a really mean email, okay, I'm not intending to call anybody out here, but um, because there's good reasons for this, but uh, sometimes Christians might find themselves showing up late to church. Well, because, you know, the, the worship, you know, it's just, it's not my style. It's not my taste. I don't like the this or that. You know, I don't like the way that person sings, or I don't like the song selection, and so I'm going to show up late to church um, just to avoid all of that. You know, I, I, just, I, I, I think it should be this way, and they don't do it that way, so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. And you know, you think about it that way, it's like, man, it's, it's, it's hard to take the focus off ourselves, isn't it? You know, we approach the worship of God through the lens of what my preferences are, what my tastes are, how I think it should be, what it should sound like according to, to my, and, you know, that's not true worship. Sometimes it's not our preferences that are high on the altar, but our time that's high on the altar. Sadly, we can uh, sometimes find ourselves claiming to worship God, but we're not really expressing this sign of humble devotion, what we're doing is giving him the leftovers of our day. And we want to call that worship, right? God, you'll have my focus. You'll have my attention. You'll have my passion. You'll have my veneration. You'll have my everything after. You know, after this, after that. I'm too busy. I'm too distracted now. I'm too blah, 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 fill in the blank. So I'll worship you later. I'll, I'll, I'll venerate you as king and ruler and authority on my time. You know, when it, when it works for me, when it's best for me. And, and you know, in those situations, it's, it's, we're claiming to give God all of our worship, but only after we have worshiped at the altar of everything else first. You know, and I think 
in many ways, Christians who are weak in worship are often that way because they're weak in their relationship with God. They might say, you know, yeah, of course he's my God, but he's not the number one priority of your life. They might say, yeah, he's almighty, but he only gets you when you're all done with other things. And of course, you know, you might say, well, yeah, he deserves our all. He deserves my everything only after he meets my standards first. Or when the worship meets my standards first. Or if it's done the way I want first. You know, and that's, that's not true worship. What we do here Sunday mornings when we gather together the body of Christ, and of course we're studying the word, but, but we, we have a time of worship and singing praises to God. What we do here gathered together as the congregation in worship, it's supposed to be an overflow of what we've already been doing all week long. Some of us don't approach it that way. We go, okay, I'm gonna come to church and the worship is gonna be my point of contact and my recharge to get me through the week. And then you go through the week and you don't worship God at all. And that's why you feel so empty and depleted by the time you come back to church. But if you haven't been living in bowed down humility before God all week, you're gonna struggle doing so on Sunday as well. And so now let's look at the tools that they employ in their worship. Verse five, or chapter five, verse eight. It tells us there that each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So they had a harp. This is likely where the idea of a little chubby angel sitting on a cloud with a harp came from, right? We've seen those pictures over time. Um, I don't think that's the picture, right, you know? But a harp, they're there with an instrument, is the idea. Now in some uh, uh, translations, this might be rendered a lyre, you know, um, a harp and lyre could be two different instruments. Sometimes they were referred to as the same instrument, but our best understanding of what this word was referring to is it's an ancient instrument that was rectangle or trapezoidal in shape and it had strings on it, you know, similar like the body of a guitar type of idea. And it was an instrument that was played. The strings were plucked as a song was sung or words were simply spoken like poetry. Right? So there was you know, even spoken word in those days, and they would have music behind it to accompany the idea. Now music, both vocally and instrumentally, is an important part of worship, and we see it here, both vocally and instrumentally, employed as the part of worship of God in heaven. The reason I'm pointing that out is there are certain groups of people within the church even today that think instrumentation as a part of worship is wrong. It's bad that worship should only be the voice. And, and if you think that way, if that's your understanding of all that, um, you know, there, there shouldn't be guitars and there shouldn't be drums, especially electric guitar because it's distorted and that word distorted means something bad. And, you know, and all these types of ideas, if you think that, well, you have a problem with scripture. You have a problem with scripture because we see them employing instruments here in the worship. And so music, it's always been important when it comes to the gathering of God's people. We see it all the way throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, music was employed on many different occasions um, when the people, uh, God's people would gather together. We see it one time in the Red Sea when the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians, right? You go back to Exodus and you read that story about God setting his people free and they flee across the wilderness and they get to the Red Sea and oh no, we're gonna die. And then God does this miracle and parts the Red Sea and they get across the Red Sea and then the ocean just boom, 
takes care of Pharaoh and his army. They didn't get to the other side and go, oh, well done, God. Golf clap of celebration. No, it tells us that they danced and they had tambourines and they sang to the Lord. They were just expressing their praise and thanks to him in this really outward way. In the temple, there would be worshiping groups and instrumentation happening. You can find that multiple places throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles 15, when, when the Ark of the Covenant came back to Jerusalem the right way, right, because they had done it the wrong way first, when they brought it back the right way, we see there in 1 Chronicles 15, David goes to the leaders of the priests, right? The tribe that was specifically set aside, you're not going to have land, you're focused on ministering to the people on God's behalf and ministering for God in his temple. And so he goes to the leader of the priests in 1 Chronicles 15 and he says, hey, I need you guys to appoint some of the priests to be worship leaders, to lead the praise of God, to lead, lead in, in, in vocally, in instrumentation, all that. And he says this specifically, to have them raise their voices with joy, accompanied by musical instruments, harps, lyres, and cymbals. Specifically laid out as David was establishing there, led by the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, to, to, to establish worship in God's house and those that would lead that worship. In 1 Chronicles 25, it's a really detailed roster of the worship team. These priests that were picked to lead worship in God's house. It's a really neat list there too. You could read it, read it through on your own when, when later on, but, but you have these worship leaders that were hand-selected and it says that a part of their worship as they were leading the people and singing these praises and, and playing instruments and, and, and doing this presentation of God, it said that they prophesied vocally. And then it says another group prophesied vocally and with instruments. So the very act of worshiping God can be prophetic, speaking forth the truth of God, and God could even speak forth the future of his intention as we're praising him and being inspired to praise him. But what's interesting is in this worship team in 1 Chronicles 25 had 288 people on the team. Can you imagine that? I don't think we could fit 288 people on our stage. But there's something very interesting that it points out there in 1 Chronicles 25. Verse 7, it says they were trained and skillful in music for the Lord. Now, this is not to say that you can't worship God unless you're trained and skillful, because that would eliminate, I think, most of us, right? We're like, I don't sing good and I can't play an instrument to save my life. But the idea is that scripturally there's a precedent for the importance of those with a calling and those that God has gifted with a musical talent to lead in worship. And that's why periodically we'll put out the notice, hey, you know, we have some, some openings on our worship team. And so if you feel like God has called you or gifted you vocally or you have a talent with an instrument, you know, we, we would like to talk to you and, and, and you know, audition you in that sense and see what God's doing in your life in that regard to, to, to have you come be a part of the worship community. But scripturally, we see this importance of those with this calling and ability to lead in worship and even to be called into full-time ministry as worship leaders. In some churches, they'll have on staff a worship pastor who's in charge of or who is the elder leading that part of the spiritual ministry to the body of Christ. What's interesting is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we see worship even employed in battle. In battle. 
is a part of the warfare, right? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. Jehoshaphat is going out to battle, and it says this. Then he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. When they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. Did you notice the detail there? It wasn't the soldiers who went out first. It was the worship team. They led the army. How's that for a battle strategy, right? Okay, we're going to war. All right, we got our weapons, we got our ammo, our supply lines are in place. All right, the enemy's coming. Ready? Charge. Uh, uh, send out the trumpet player and the harp player and the lyre player and the guy with the cymbals. I mean, I guess you could hit him with a cymbal, but, but you know, how's that going to work? How is that going to work? But it was the worshipers. And for those of you that might be thinking, oh, well, yeah, those were the bad singers. You go ahead of the army, you know? No. That, that wasn't what's taking place here, right? You think you could sing? Sure, lead the charge. No. Um, but what I think is beautiful about this, this scripture here is, is what happened when the worshipers worshiped and sang, give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. His faithful love for them endured. That's what happened, right? It says that the Lord said ambushes against their enemies and their enemies were defeated. But when did they worship? Before the victory or after the victory? Before the victory. They worshiped before the victory. They thanked God before the battle for what he hadn't done yet, trusting that he would. You see what worship is about? God, you're holy. You're almighty. God, you can do all things. God, I'm praising you because I, I don't have anything to worry about in life because you, you go before me. God, I haven't even gotten to the fight yet, but I just want to praise you and, and, and sing glory to your name because I know you are with me. Think about that next time you're in a battle, heading into a battle, getting into a fight. Think about that next time. Maybe start with with thanking God for the victory he's already given you. Maybe start with praising him, that God, your faithful love for me endures forever, and so it's gonna endure with me through this fight, and hallelujah, praise your name. Maybe for some, it's, it's in the context of your marriage relationship, right? People fight. It's, it's, it's a fact of life there, but maybe next time there's a battle coming or there's a fight brewing or it just st- it's starting to, to, to swell up, stop. And together, just let's, let's worship God for a moment. I know we're having a disagreement right now, but, but let's worship God for a moment. Just, just try and bring God into that moment and say, God, I thank you for already reconciling us through your blood. I thank you for already resolving this fight and this battle, God. We praise you for that. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for loving me forever, no matter what. 
do that and, and then see how, how hard it is to not extend grace and mercy and forgiveness in that moment. Music is and, and always has been just a powerful force in society. I think God made it that way. I mean, every society, every culture has songs, has folk songs, has anthems, something that inspire or capture the hearts of people when we hear them, right? Every country has a national anthem, and when that's played, there's, there's a sense of, of patriotism that is supposed to be welled up through that. And, and, and you know, music's powerful. We, we sell stuff with music, right? Millions and millions of dollars are spent every year to hire somebody to come up with a jingle that'll stick in your head. Ready? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. You know, there, there's jingles out there that, that just bring us to mind. Oh, yeah, I should go to McDonald's. I should go do this. Or I should go do that, you know? Millions of dollars, and it's like five notes. But it's powerful. But it's powerful. We work to music. We sleep to music, some of us. Music can change our mood. It can, it can change our thoughts. It can, you know, it, it, it's, it's powerful. And, and I believe God moves in and through music. And I think God made us to respond to it. That's why it's such a critical, important part of our worship of him. Yeah, we talk about work is worship. Work is unto the Lord, and our giving is worship, right? And yeah, we get to you know, give to God in support of, of, of him and his kingdom, and we're just giving back what he's given us, and God, and, yeah, that's worship too. And studying the word together, we, we are worshiping God as we venerate his word, yes. But there's something powerful about the musical part of worship, the singing and the playing and the effect it has on us. Now, the big question that comes up out of this is, well, what style of music is in heaven? Well, metalcore, of course. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's easy. No. Um, I think it's going to be there. I think all music is going to be there in heaven. You know, and, and some might go, well, what was the style of music in ancient Israel? And we don't really know. But we could look back in scripture to kind of find out how the music was presented. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 150, verses three through five, and it says this. Praise him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. And my favorite verse, praise him with resounding cymbals and praise him with clashing cymbals. That sounds pretty metal to me. But the idea of those verses is that it was, it, was, it was loud, right? The blasting of the ram's horn. It was tasteful and beautiful with the harp and the lyre. It was rhythmic. It was celebratory. It made you move. It, 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 it did something to you in, in as, as a part of your response to God. So there was a benefit of the music for you, but that's not what it was about, in music, it, it does indeed move us as a part of our response to God, but not just physically. I'm not just speaking physically, right? I'm a toe tapper, right? People hate sitting in pews with me because my feet bounce constantly. Like, can you stop that? I'm like, I wish I could. There's a reason I'm a drummer, okay? Um, but when we think of being moved, 
You know, when we worship God and we're singing these words to him and we're thinking about all he has done for us and all that he has accomplished and we sing out in our voice, you know, and, and, and nowhere in scripture does it say it needs to be a beautiful voice, right? That joyful noise we talk about all the time. But we just, we were expressing to God or maybe it's instrumentation. You could play and you, so you play guitar, you play drums or keyboard or whatever instrument. You're just expressing and singing out and playing out your gratitude to him you can absolutely be moved to tears, moved to laughter, moved to all kinds of emotions. Music has that effect on us. There was a song, um, some of you are familiar with a band named Skillet. They're kind of a Christian rock band. I love them, they're great. And a few years ago, they, they came out with a new album and I'm listening to it and I'm like, yeah, this is good stuff, right? And then they had this one song on there called Stars. And it was kind of like a rock ballad type of thing. First time I, I listened to that song, I just started blubbering like a baby, you know, because it was talking about, like, no matter uh, what's happening in life, the storms, how much I've, I've, I've messed up, God, you hold my heart because you're the one who holds the stars, right? And I, was just, I would listen to that, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm just so moved by the words. And then over the years, sometimes I go back and listen to it, and I moved again. I just, I don't know what it is, but, but that particular song is an example of me being moved emotionally about it, and I just want to just cry these words out to God because it's just speaking such a powerful truth for me, right? Songs can do that to us. But still, sometimes people get caught up in, well, what kind of music does God enjoy, and what genre, and how fast, or how slow? And here's the answer to that question. Whatever comes from your heart, if it's true and honest about praising him, that's what honors God. And that could be hymns. That could be punk rock. That can be Maranatha music. That could be metalcore, hallelujah, right? It's, it's all of it involved, as long as the point is worshiping him and praising him and giving him glory. It says they had golden bowls filled with the incense, which are the prayers of the saints, this is a picture of, um, from the Old Testament of the priests in the temple. When the priest would walk in to the, to the holy place, they would walk in with this bowl filled with, with incense, and the incense was burning, and that bowl, it represented the prayers of the people. And so as a part of the worship service, what you would have is the people were outside in the temple of the courtyard praying. They were literally praying. They're lifting up their prayers to God in a, in a big communal prayer service, and then as that was happening, the priest would then walk in to the holy place to offer those prayers to God represented by the incense. We see that concept in Psalm chapter 141, verse two. It says, may my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. And so you have this bowl here in heaven that these elders are holding representing all the prayers of God's people. Now, I want to point out, this is a part of worship. This is a part of the worship of God, all the intercessions, all the pleadings, all the confessions, all the burdens, all the worries, all the fears, all the anxieties, all being poured out to God as he is listening. And the idea of the incense, incense was something that was sweet smelling, and so the idea here is, is that your prayers being poured out to God as an act of worship are sweet smelling to God. Like it, it, it's never something startling or surprising or annoying to God. We've all had that moment, right? I'm experiencing those moments with my grandson right now. Hmm, that's an interesting aroma. A little startling, you know? 
Our prayers aren't like that to God. It's a sweet smelling aroma. It's, it's this is wonderful, this is great, this is beautiful, this is, a, this is an awesome thing. He loves and he enjoys hearing the prayers of his kids. And when we are pouring out our prayers to him, especially in song and music, and that's the context of it is we're pouring out our prayers to him as a part of worship, it's an act of worship. Why? Because the very act of prayer is you and me voicing your utter dependence on him. The very fact that you're saying, God, I need you, that's worship. God, you are capable, you are worthy, you you can handle this, I trust you, right? Those singers going out before battle, Lord, you've already given me the victory, here's the issue, here's what I'm about to walk into, but God, I know you know and know you're gonna fix it. It's, It's this whole idea of expressing your trust and your faith and your belief in him by bringing it to him. And so verse nine, we get to the nature of the worship. It says, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. So the nature of their worship here, it says in the very beginning, they sang what? A new song, Okay. Now, what do they mean by that, right? How old can a song be before we have to stop singing it? You know, is it five years? Is it 10 years, right? Is that even what they mean? I don't think so. It doesn't mean what you probably think it means. Now, in the book of Psalms, which was really the song book of Israel, um, you have the concept, this concept of a new song comes up nine times throughout the entire book of songs. And in that idea, some people do get hung up on the age of songs. Like, is it an old song? Is it a new song? And, and then you start to go, well, is it a good one or a bad one based upon those types of things? And I've mentioned some of that, right? Sometimes, you know, we hear like, why can't we just do only hymns? As if those are the only spiritual songs that have ever existed. Some today from the early Calvary Chapel movement will sometimes go, why can't we just do the old Maranatha stuff? As if that was the only spiritual music that will ever exist. Others are, you know, why, why can't we do this stuff for that stuff? You know, fill in the blank of the era <laughs> of what it is. And we get caught up in that type of thinking, but I think the reason we could get caught up in that type of thinking in regards to worship is because of the nature of music and its effect on us and how it ties us emotionally to moments, Right? Many of us most um, typically like best the, the worship music that was on the radio or was prevalent during the most spiritually vibrant times of our lives. That tends to be fairly common. You know, during that decade or that time, you know, just, man, I was maybe a brand new baby Christian. Maybe it was like when you first got saved and the wonder of, of all of that was there. And so the music from that time, that's like your favorite worship music. Or, or maybe it was a different season of life, but God was moving powerfully in all the songs of that time, right? They're just like, oh, that's my favorite worship music. And we could find ourselves being like, why can't we do that and only that? But those songs those memories, the nostalgia that we get from those older songs or those times from another period, it's all tied to what God was doing then. That's what it's tied to. And if that's all we want to sing, if that's all we want to sing out to God and worship, what we are essentially saying, or at least in danger of saying, is God, I only want to celebrate what you once did 
because you're not doing anything now. You may not say those words, but that can be an inclination of the heart. And so we're called to sing a new song in that regard. The idea is to have an ever-growing, fresh expression of what God is doing today in your life and praising him for what he is doing now and praising him for what he is doing in this season of life. Now, that doesn't mean an old song can't express what God is doing in this moment of your life. So it's not the age of the song in that regard, right? It could be an old hymn that you hear, and it's like, oh my gosh, God is just, that is what God is doing in my life right now, and you just want to sing that and praise that out to him. Amen. It doesn't mean that, that remembering what God has done in the past is in any way inherently a bad thing, right? There's a lot about that about remembering what God has done, right? We're responding to what God has done in worship. And so, so this idea of a new song is like, oh, it, it doesn't have to only be this. But sometimes we do fall into a trap of thinking it only has to be this, old stuff. And in that, it can mean that in your worship, maybe you're clinging to past graces or clinging to past blessings and you're, you're living and you're walking in that past work that God did instead of living and walking in what God is and wants to do today. That's the idea of singing a new song. And if you're tied to just simply walking and celebrating what God has done in the past, that can be a part of why the new songs don't appeal to you. (laughs) No, 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 it's only this past nostalgia, this past feeling, this past work. That's all I want to stay in. And so there'll be new songs, new music come out, and you're like, no, that doesn't speak to me, you know, and maybe it might if you open your eyes to what God is doing today. Make sense? All right. I read this story about a young man who once told his dad, hey dad, uh, I I love God, I love the church, but the music is kind of boring. And his dad got mad at him, how dare you, right? Those songs are our foundation and our tradition. And he's like, you know, if you don't like them, why don't you write some songs then? And the kid said, you know what, I'm gonna do that. His name was Isaac Watts. He ended up writing many of the most famous worship songs that are even still sung today. He wrote some, gosh, it's hundreds and hundreds of songs. Like, for example, Joy to the World, which I think in its day was pretty speed metal for its time. Um, It's a pretty upbeat song. He wrote When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. These are songs we still sing today because they, they capture something of what God is doing in every generation. But every generation, every culture has an ever evolving expression through music through song, and and as God moves in each generation, the expression of praise and worship through music will change as well. It'll change stylistically, it'll change instrumentally, it'll even change vocally, and that is a good thing. As long as it's in response to God and focused on him and what he's done. And so, not only was it a new song, as it says, but it was a song for, as we've been talking about, what God has done. What they're singing back to God is you are worthy to take the scroll, you are worthy to open its seals because you were slaughtered for us, right? And you purchased us. The idea is you've redeemed us for God by your blood out of all the people of the earth. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a a songwriter and you want to have an anointed worship song, just fill it with Jesus. 
Just fill it up with Jesus and, and, and really make sure his sacrifice, what he's done for us and what he's done for you is kind of the centerpiece of all of that. I'm not saying exclusively that's only a worship song, but, but I think that would be anointed because it's all about him and his sacrifice. And when churches try to remove the blood from the worship or remove the death or remove the sacrifice from the worship, and that happens in a lot of places today. The music is, is turning to be so focused on me and my experience and what I've offered to God and what I've done. And that's not to say a good worship song can't be like, God, I love you, right? But, but there's, there's a difference in it's about him versus it's about me. But when churches try and remove these elements, um, it, it kills the life of the worship. It kills what it's about. It kills what it's for. And so you'll notice, too, that the worship song was, was a song that only the redeemed could sing, right? The unsaved couldn't sing this. You purchased us. You redeemed us from all the nations of the world. The unsaved can't sing that song. That's something that only the redeemed can, see, and I think this is a, can sing, and I think this is a paramount characteristic of true worship. Because it's based on a true relationship with God and what he's done. And lastly, the song was about what God would do now and in the future, right? You're going to make us kings and priests. You know, I think worship should um, fling us into the future. <laughs> should fling our minds in the future, remind us about our future state, remind us about what's to come as, as his children. You know, when we marvel at what God will do for us and with us, what, what God is going to do beyond our time here on earth. When we think about, like, you know, especially in context of the difficulties and the struggles of life, and we go, I want to put that aside, and I want to put the conflict aside and the fighting and all that. God, I just, Lord. And we think about where we're going to be, that he's going to make us a kingdom, his kingdom, kings and priests, to his glory, ruling with him. And, and I believe this is a reference directly to the millennium that is to come, and we'll get into that later. But, but the idea of that, God, we're going to be co-heirs with you forever. That definitely changes our perspective on now. And so worship is for God. It's about God. It's to God. But it, it does. I'm not going to ignore the fact that it does have a beneficial effect for us. When we put our focus on the one who rules our life now and the one who's going to make us rule with him in the future, when we put our focus on the salvation we have now and the glory that means in the future, I think it's one of the greatest deliverances from anxiety and depression and fear and all of that stuff. It's, it, none of those things can tie us down because we're free. And we express that in worship. So get used to worship. Get used to singing. Get used to playing. Get used to all of that because we're going to be doing it forever. We're going to be doing it for all of eternity. God made us to worship him. God made us to respond to him in, in singing and song. And it's a wonderfully amazing gift and thing we get to do as his people. You know, the Bible says a joyful heart makes a face cheerful. And, and so sing. Make that joyful noise. Respond to God in worship. Bow your heart to him in reverent humility because he is worth it. And so today I wanted to close our service um, with an old song, right? Um, but it's one that's been speaking to me lately in what God is doing in my life today. And, and, and I pray it speaks to what God is doing in your life today. 
but it's tied to our study, right? It's from a scripture I referenced earlier, Psalm 95.6, come let us worship and bow down. And so we're gonna close in that song, and I just pray that, that you just respond to what God has done. In that concept of bowing your heart before him in reverence and humility, knowing that we deserve nothing, knowing that, that we, we have earned nothing, we're, we're sinners, but we're sinners saved by the grace of Almighty God. We're people redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, hallelujah. And we get to go to heaven one day. I can't wait to get there. I hope you can't wait to get there. And in the meantime, let that hope before us carry us through the difficulties of now. Take that opportunity to worship him truly, to worship him with true worship that's not about you, not about me, not about our preferences, not about our likes, not about any of that, but all about him, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, I know we, we don't love you perfectly, but Lord, you didn't ask us to be perfect people. You just want us to respond to you. You want us to, to put you in that place, that number one place in our lives. You want us to, to choose you as our priority and our reason for being God. And Lord, how can we not after what you've done for us, but yet, Lord, we struggle. So Lord, today, let, let today be a reminder of, of, of what we're called to do in worshiping you. Let today be an encouragement, God, of, of where we're to put our focus and our hearts in regards to worshiping you, God. Yes, Lord, we're thankful for the gift of different types of music that, that, that appeal to our interest and likes, and God, we're so grateful, Lord, for all of that. But Lord, at the end of the day, we don't worship because we like it. We don't worship because it makes us feel good. We worship because you are worthy. And so, God, may we be people of worship, Lord. Let us be people who worship and bow down. Let us be people who, who have kneeling hearts before you. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's worship. <laughs>